Tonight we're beginning a new sermon series. It's related to the last one. The last five weeks we spent looking through the doctrine of Scripture. Can anybody remember the acronym that we used to remember the doctrine of Scripture who has been here the last few weeks? Nathan? SCAN. Sufficiency, clarity, authority, necessity, and then there's not really room for the I, inerrancy. Um, but these are the five pillars, the five doctrines of Scripture that we spent the last five weeks looking at. And now we're going to begin, now that we've laid that foundation, because really the, the, the great doctrines of the Reformation, the, the biblical doctrines that were recovered during after the end of the Dark Ages, were doctrines that were recovered because of the doctrine of Scripture, because of a, of a mindset to go back to the source, to go back to the infallible authority. Let's go to God's word. Let's not go to tradition. Let's go to the word of God. And then from that, we have all these great truths emerging from that time period, recovered from that time period. Tonight, we're going to be looking at the first of them, the doctrine of God, who God is, and specifically looking at Scripture and who God is. This is not going to be a more traditional study. Traditionally, when you think about the doctrine of God, you think about the attributes of God, you know, talking about God's holiness, talking about God's love, talking about God's wrath and going through all these lists of attributes and going to different scriptures. That's good and it's helpful. And we're doing that actually in Sunday school. Uh, Kevin St. John is doing that. But what we're going to be doing in the evening service is looking at the, the acts of God, the works of God, to see God in action. I mentioned this morning as we, as preparing for tonight, that if someone was to describe to you a Ferrari and to tell you the, the kind of wheels and the rims and the thing that it's made of and how much it costs and what it's its top speed and what's its zero to 60 and all of these different things about the Ferrari, yeah, you'd have some knowledge about the Ferrari, but if they put you in the passenger seat, started that car up, that 12-cylinder engine, and I know, men, you can hear the difference between a Ferrari, uh, the, the girls, I, I know some of you don't can't hear the difference between a 12-cylinder Ferrari and another car, but anyways, when that Ferrari starts up and they were to drive you down the racetrack, now you have a better idea of what a Ferrari is. The same thing as I think someone was telling me this recently about, about a gun and describing, well, someone can describe to you all the different parts of a gun and how it works and here's the trigger and here's the cock and the hammer and how it all works. But really, if you just shoot that gun, people got a good idea what a gun is and how it works. Okay, and the same thing we want to talk about God. We, we don't just want to just put him in the dock and describe all the different pieces of him. But rather, we want to see God at work and see God in action. And so we're going to be talking about the God who creates, the God of miracles, the God who decrees the end from the beginning, the God who upholds, talking about God's providence. We're going to spend a couple weeks on that. Okay, to see God in action in the scriptures and how he reveals himself through the things that he does. And so tonight we're going to be looking at creation. And if you have your handout with you, we're going to a number of different passages. That's why they're written down in here to help you go through so you don't have to constantly be flipping through the scriptures. We start with Genesis 1.1, the very beginning of the Bible, the first words of the Bible, in the beginning, God created. That's our first description of, of who this God is. He created and he was in the beginning. Before the beginning was, God is. And in the beginning, God created. Romans 1.20 tells us this, for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. That is, if you want to see God's attributes, 
Look at creation. They're clearly perceiving the things that he has made. We see his divine nature. We see his wisdom. We see his power because of the things that he has made. So that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. God as the God who creates. The first few blanks you have in your handout there is God's power and wisdom seen in creation. Okay, God's power and wisdom seen in creation. If you do have a Bible with you, you can turn to Job 38. Job 38. We're going to look at a few different passages in Job 38. If you've read the book of Job, you realize that Job starts off really well whenever all of his possessions, his family, his health, all of it is taken away. And he responds so graciously to God. Naked I came in this world, naked I will go out of it. Blessed be the name of the Lord who, who both has given and who has taken away. And yet as we continue to read through that book, you see Job really struggling, really grappling with God's goodness. And how can God be good? And how can he be in control? And how can he let this happen to the righteous and when the wicked are flourishing? And then we have the great climax at the end of Job, starting in verse, starting in chapter 38, when God speaks to Job out of the whirlwind. He tells him to, to gird up his loins, to dress for action. And then God then goes through all of these different things that he has made and that he controls, that he sustains, that he upholds the things that he has designed to show that his wisdom and his power are so much greater than Job. And all Job can do is, is shut his mouth, cover his face and repent in dust and ashes when he considers God's greatness. Now, we're not going to go through all of the details of Job 38 through 41, but that would be a good passage to read through as sometimes we can struggle with God's goodness or with what's going on in this world. And sometimes we need to be humbled just by realizing who God is. What we see in, in Job 38 through 40, we see God creates and sustains creatures great and small. So the first thing we're going to see in God's creation, his power and wisdom seen in creation is creatures great and small. Creatures testify to God's power and wisdom. These animals, these amazing animals that God has made. And I just want to think about a few of these creatures that God has made uh, because they're so so neat. Um, I'm I'm enjoying with Raquel teaching the teaching the kids at home and some of the neat stuff they learn. I wish I could be in school with them all day and uh, learn about some of the things that they're learning. Um, but I remember learning recently about giraffes and thinking about think about the giraffe. You know, the tallest land creature, tallest mammal. It stands about 18 feet tall. Okay, its neck is two meters long. Like this is a, a massive animal. Weighs about, by about the size of a, weighs about, about the same of a truck, I, I assume. It consumes over a hundred pounds of leaves and twigs every day. Now, its heart, in order to pump blood from its body up to its head, is a 25 pound heart. That's the size of this heart that's pumping that blood up its neck. Now, what's so amazing about the giraffe is not only does it have a heart that massive to be able to get enough blood pressure to get up to his head, but when that giraffe bends down to drink water, now that head is going from 20 feet all the way down to the ground. And so now you have a two meter neck that's no longer needs blood being pumped upwards against gravity. But now you have blood being pumped downwards into that little head of his or hers. 
And you imagine now that 25 pound heart now squeezing blood down his head is going to blow his brains out. Okay. There's too much pressure there. His head's going to explode. So what, what happens? How, what, did, what has God done to the giraffe? Well, in the giraffe's neck, there's a bunch of valves and shunts to regulate blood flow. When its head goes down, these valves and shunts begin to close and open to regulate the blood pressure. And not only that, there's a bunch of blood vessels in the back of its, of its brain. So as blood begins to pool, these things absorb and they expand and they, they do so in a way that it doesn't put any pressure on the brain. And not only that, but when that draft, say he's at the watering hole, boom, he sees a lion beside him. Now that draft lifts up its head 20 feet in the air and begins to run away. Now you realize what you do if you're laying on the couch too long and you get up the couch, boy, you're, you're dizzy because there's no blood in your head. Now that draft has come up 20 feet. But the same thing, th- those, those blood vessels, those shunts and valves all open up so there's perfect pressure and that draft doesn't pass out, doesn't get dizzy. It can just run away like anything. Okay, that's that's amazing thing that God has designed in the giraffe. And not only do do giraffes have that, but even long neck birds have that same feature. These shunts and valves in their neck that helps them to to, to regulate the blood flow. Now, how do how do how do scientists, our our naturalistic materialist friends describe that? Because birds have no relation to mammals. Okay, but yet they have the exact same design features in their long necks to be able to to account for this pressure and changes of blood flow as it dips its head down or lifts it up. Now they have a thing that they call convergent evolution. And what they mean by this this is a theory that says that unrelated species evolve similar adaptations when faced with similar challenges. So it's just a statement of fact that those things must have have adapted and evolved the exact same system, even though they're completely unrelated because they had a similar challenge. Now, one thing we have to remember is, unless <laughs> we consider evolution, uh, dead things don't evolve. So that very first time that, that giraffe had an extra long neck and went down and that blood pressure was too much and his brain exploded, well, he's not going to be lying on the ground bleeding out thinking, boy, I better evolve some, some shunts and some valves in my neck so that doesn't happen again. Okay? This doesn't, doesn't happen. It's, it's, a, it's a testament to God's wisdom, his power, and his greatness in an animal like the giraffe. And there are thousands upon thousands of creatures that absolutely defy man's wisdom and evolutionary theory and clearly display the glory of God as our creator. Uh, Birds and their amazing design and their ability to fly and their their lung system, their beaks, uh, their bones and their their hollowness and and all the strength. It's just amazing how birds can fly. There's the woodpecker who hammers his head against a hard tree. He hammers his head against a tree 20 times in a second, about 10,000 times a day. With no pain. Imagine that. You're sitting here banging your head against the wall that often. (laughs) But he has air pockets in his skull that protect his brain. Then we have the bombardier beetle that shoots explosive chemicals like a gun at his enemies. Mixing these two chemicals together at the right time, the right proportions, and then shoots to defend himself, this little bug. There are fish that live in the depths of the ocean as far down as, as we can go as human beings. And there's fish down there. Under extreme pressures, there's not even light that makes it down that far into the ocean. And we have fish down there just doing just fine. And not only that, we have fish down there that have what they call bioluminescence, the, the ability to make with the chemicals in their body lights. And there's even a fish that has a little light on the front of his head like a lure and the other fish come to it and then he uses that to catch his prey. 
It's amazing the things that God has made. No matter how young or how old you are, no matter what culture or time period or language you speak, we are all amazed at God's creatures. And why is that? Why are we all? Why is that a common human experience for all of us? Why do we love going to the zoo? Why do we love looking at animals? That's so strange, isn't it? (laughs) Aren't we so much superior than them? Why do we love looking at these things? Because they testify to God's wisdom and his greatness, and they invoke in us a sense of awe and wonder. And so we love to consider what God has made, because God has given us a joy, a clearly perceptible view and understanding of the things that he has made, such that we would honor him and give thanks to him as the creator. So these wonderful animals testify to God's Greatness, his power and his wisdom. It's not just animals. Look with me in Job 38, down to verse 25. Okay, Job 38, verse 25. Here's God speaking. And he says, Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt? And then look at verse 35 in Job 38, verse 35. Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are. Do we have that kind of power over lightning and thunder? Can you think of anything that is as, as, as more common than lightning? Like we know what lightning is. We see it all the time. But yet it's so powerful. It is so amazing. It testifies again to God's greatness. Now we know what a lightning is. It's some enormous electrical charge. There's an imbalance between positive and negative charges up in the clouds. What's interesting is scientists still don't really understand everything about lightning. Uh, They still don't know its cause. They think it's directly related to the presence of ice crystals in the clouds, but they're not exactly sure what causes it. What we do know is that there's this, when a lightning strike is about to start, there's this thing called the leader that's going to make a connection between the clouds and the ground before the lightning bolt comes down. And so this leader comes down 150 feet at a time at about 136 thousand miles an hour as it comes from the clouds to the ground and as it's about to reach the ground we have a streamer another electrical charge come from the ground in order to meet up with it and complete the circuit then we have a bolt of electricity that streaks back up along the leader's path at about 62 million miles per hour and creates lightning and then once that stream is connection is made from the clouds to the ground multiple flashes go and we see them as one single flash because they go so incredibly fast now as we consider the power and the strength of lightning it's amazing because lightning if you could measure it it'd be it'd be no greater than the size of your thumb the the stream of light that comes down or electricity that comes down in a bolt of lightning now lightning is five or six times hotter than the surface of the sun That's the heat that comes down when lightning strikes. It's so hot that when lightning strikes sandy soil, it makes glass. And so you walk on a beach after lightning has struck, you'll see glass on the ground because the lightning has melted that sand into glass. Now, when the lightning bolt comes down, why do we hear thunder? It's because the lightning bolt superheats the air. You understand, uh, five or six times the, the temperature of the sun comes streaking down through a thumb width piece of air, and that goes down that air super expands, nearly explodes. And that's what we hear when we hear thunder. We hear that air expanding incredibly as that hot electrical charge, big static electrical charge goes to the ground. An average lightning bolt has enough energy to operate a 100-watt light bulb for more than three months straight. 
Okay. Uh, the average length of a lightning bolt is about two or three miles. Now, lightning flashes more than three million times a day worldwide. Three million times a day. That's about 40 times a second that lightning strikes either between the clouds or down to the ground. Um, each lightning bolt contains up to a billion volts of electricity. It's one of the most beautiful, powerful, unpredictable, and dangerous of all the natural phenomena. And, and to us, it's common. We know what lightning and thunder is, but yet this testifies to God's greatness and his power. And not only that, we need lightning. Lightning puts nitrogen and, and stuff, nutrients, back in the ground uh, so farmers can, can continue to grow their crops. This is, this is important. It's all part of God's design and his power. And that's why when God asked Job, can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Well, God can. Look with me also in Job 38, verse 29 and 30. It says, from whose womb, whose source did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone and the face of the deep is frozen. Okay, water and ice. Another simple thing that we see in creation all the time. Uh, We don't understand necessarily its full implications. The whole fact that water is such a strange substance that when it freezes, uh, it freezes harder than the liquid, but it's less dense such that it floats, such that ice freezes from the top down so we can still have all these sea life. And we have so much, so much of our life on planet Earth requires the properties of water to be exactly like they are. Uh, when I was looking up at this, I was wondering why ice is slippery. And they might think, well, that's a, that's a silly question. Ice is slippery. But we ask, why? Scientifically, why is ice slippery? They still don't really know why ice is slippery. <laughs> it, it's interesting. They used to think that when you step on a piece of ice, um, it, 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 would, it would melt a little bit or turn to liquid on the surface, and that would give you your, give you your slippery, because ice is, is a solid. Why is it slippery? Um, but but they've said, though, that's not the case. It doesn't melt what they think is that very very edge layer of ice, it has properties of a liquid, even though it's a solid and has a weak connection to the rest of the solid, so you have that slippery surface. But they're still not quite sure why ice is slippery. And again, God has, has made water and ice and their properties in perfect balance in our universe. Job 38, 36. 38, 36. It says, who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Our human brain is faster than the fastest computer. Every move, sense, hearing, emotion, laugh, cry, signals, the beat of our heart, the lungs that draw our breath, our eyelids blink are all controlled by our brain. It's amazing. Amazing. This three pound wrinkly mass in our skull makes about 2% of our body weight, but uses 20% of our energy. And much, so much is unknown about our brain. And it's such an amazing thing. One scientist called it the most complex thing we have yet discovered in our universe is the human brain. There's billions of microscopic cells called neurons which send electrical and chemical messages to your body and receive those messages. There's more messages happening in your brain right now than all the text messages that are happening right now in the whole world. Okay, That's what's going on in our head. It's amazing. And God's saying, who has done this? Who, who has knit your inward parts together? Who has given you understanding? Who can, who can make the mind? And God can just speak it. And it's there. It's amazing to consider God's creative power. 
testifies to his wisdom, to his greatness, um, to his power. And so it's, this is what, what Paul says in Romans one twenty when he says that the, the things that, were, that God has made, that we can see them, we can clearly perceive who God is. Now what I want to do with this, there's three different things uh, remaining in our handout that we're going to look at on how creation reveals things about God. Okay, we looked at his, his wisdom and power, but more specifically, I want to look at other aspects of God's creation. The first thing we're going to look at is creation reveals God's glory and establishes worship. Creation reveals God's glory and establishes worship. Okay, the heavens, God's creation, the skies, the atmosphere, the planets, the universe declare the glory of God, the greatness of God. Psalm 19, 1 to 4 says this, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Okay, creation declares God's glory, his greatness, his fame, his honor, his splendor, his majesty. Okay, what, what exactly is glory? You know, the glory of the sun is, is its radiant light. You can barely look at the sun. This for a split second or two. You can't stare at the glory of the sun, which is its amazing brilliance and light. Well, creation shows, shines forth God's glory, his splendor. Not only does creation declare the glory of God, but creation itself is said to worship God. Psalm 148, it's written down in your handout. It says this, praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights, praise him, all his angels, praise him, all his hosts, praise him, sun and moon, praise him, all you shining stars, praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord for he commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars. And verse 10, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and all flying birds, kings of the earth. And all peoples, princes, and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. He's the creator of everything. Everything in creation praises him and worships him. Creation reveals God's glory and establishes worship. Why is God created? To show his glory and his creation worships him. Everything in creation worships him. Nehemiah 9.6 You are the Lord, you alone. You made heaven, the heaven of heavens, and all their host, the earth and all that is on it the seas and all that is in them and you preserve all of them and the host of heaven worships you. Worships you. 
As we consider God's creation, it drives us to awe and wonder at His greatness and His majesty and His splendor. And we worship that feeling inside of us when we consider the stars, when we consider the mountains, when we see the beauty of, of falls, of water falling over a cliff, when we see the splendor of animals. That sense that we feel is awe and wonder. It's meant to be directed towards God in worship. Not only do we worship Him, but we realize just how small and tiny we are. When we consider the Creator and the scope of His universe, that He created it by His Word, who are we? Who are we? Psalm 8, 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Not only are we about this small, a little speck on this rock hurtling around a star at incredible speeds, but God actually cares for us. He loves us. He's mindful of us. He takes care of us. He sent his son to redeem us. But wonder, Psalm 95, 3 and 7 says this, For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountain are, are His also. The sea is His, for He made it. And His hands form the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God. And we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. One of the big reasons why I think that so many people in our society today want to deny that God is the creator, they realize what that means. If he is our maker, we need to bow down to him and worship, which is exactly what scripture says. God created the world for his own worship. He created the world, all of it is for his own glory, to bring praise to himself. Isaiah 43, 7, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory whom I formed and made. We are made for God's glory. Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And Revelation four eleven again, stating why we were created. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. God is worthy of every honor, accolade, accolade, glory, praise, worship, because he's the creator. He's the creator of all things. So creation reveals God's glory and establishes worship. The second thing I want to look at tonight, creation reveals God's lordship and establishes his authority. Creation reveals God's lordship and establishes his authority. We see the authority of God right in the Genesis account. God said, let there be light. And there was light. Who commands that kind of authority? When the kids were younger, we were reading that as a, as a nighttime story. And I said, come on, boys, you try to do the same thing. Try, try to say, let there be light. You know, And they, they were trying to call things into existence, whether that was a toy or, or somebody else or another person like them. Nothing. They have no power to do that. But God, his authority is so amazing that he can call into existence things that are not simply by the command of his word. He exercises authority over his creation, not only by calling it into existence, but by naming it. 
He calls the light day and he calls the darkness night and he makes a judgment calling it good. All of these things are a demonstration of God's authority. Psalm 33, 6 to 9, it's written down in your handout. It says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. You know, why were the disciples so afraid of Jesus when he spoke to the wind and the waves and they were completely still? Imagine being in a boat with someone who has that kind of power, who can speak to nature. Boy, these, these men were just completely undone. Who is this man who commands the wind and the waves and they would obey him? Only God can do that. This is exactly why we, we see the authority of God, his lordship over all things. He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Not only does God demonstrate his power and authority in creation, but because he has created all things, he is Lord over all things. He owns all things. Everything is accountable, responsible to God. Psalm 24, 1-2 says this, The earth is the Lord's, it's his, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. This earth is his. Everything about this creation is his. Even who we are is his. Everything. He exercises lordship over all things. There's not one molecule, particle, of which God does not say, that is mine. He is Lord over all. And so we owe him allegiance and worship. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created. Speaking of the Son, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Through him and for him. He's the source of all things. He's not dependent on anything or anyone. He is Lord over all. Lord over all. Acts 17, 24, 25 says this, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord, ruler of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Okay? God has made everything and he is Lord over everything. And then I have here Romans 1, 19 and 23. We read part of this at the beginning. We'll read it again. It says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. No one can say, I, I do not believe in God. I do not see the evidence for him. Verse 21 for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is what we do in our sinful nature as human beings. We exchange the glory of God. We do not give him the honor and praise and worship that he rightfully deserves as Lord and creator over all. And we worship ourselves 
worship the creation, worship creatures rather than him. So creation reveals God's authority and establishes his lordship. The third thing we're going to see is that creation cries for redemption and new creation. Creation cries for redemption and new creation. Not only does God being the creator establish his right to rule, to exercise authority and to judge this world, it also gives him the right to redeem it, to buy it back, to judge it as he seems fit, to curse it. And so here it speaks of God's great salvation. And it's so interesting to see in Scripture how when Scriptures talk about salvation, how so often that is put in terms of creation. How it puts those two concepts of God being the creator and God being the savior so often in parallel. That these are, these are two of the same ideas that God is the creator and he's also the savior. We'll see that in a second, but let's look first at Isaiah 44, 21 to 26. It says, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the sign, signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. Sounds like Romans 1. Verse 26 who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built and I will raise up their ruins. You see how God gives his promise of salvation, his promise of redemption, calling his people to come to him for redemption, for salvation. And what's the basis for that? I am the God who made heaven and earth. And I'm going to redeem this earth and all creation is going to praise and worship me, whether that's the seas, whether that's the, the heavenly host thing on the earth. They're all going to worship the Lord because of his great salvation. Now we have salvation here described as a type of new creation, recreation. Second Corinthians 517. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. God has made you new. He has exercised his creative authority. To make you a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Second Corinthians 4, 6. Look at the words of creation in this verse. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Let there be light. He has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The same God who said, let light come into existence is the same God who says, boom, there in your heart is the light. Seeing the face of Jesus Christ, the glory of God, your salvation through his word, he has given life and light. Ephesians 2.1 describes how we, in our common state as human beings, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. And it continues and says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. Okay, he's redeemed us. He's saved us. 
He's made us alive. And, this is, and also it says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. There's that created word again. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And now we're called to put on the new self which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We're being renewed, restored into the image of Jesus Christ. A new creation, personally, a new creation. That's how salvation is described. Not only that, but we receive Christ's image. First, First Corinthians 14, 15, 49 says, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, talking about Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Okay, being recreated in Christ's likeness. Not in his godness, but in his character. His attributes in terms of his holiness. We'd be like him because we're going to see him as he is. And this is a creative act of God. Romans 8, 19 and 21. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation is longing, longing, groaning for this new creation, for God to redeem not only the sons of God as they appear, but also redeem this whole universe. And so salvation and creation are two ideas that are so intertwined, so related. I'm going to skip over Isaiah 65 and Revelation 21. You can read those on your own time later. But it's important to note that God's plan of new creation was not his plan B. It was not, oh, look what happened to my creation. I better, I better start new. I better start fresh. Before the foundation of the world, God chose to do it this way for his own glory. This new creation, including the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was slain before the foundation of the world, was part of God's plan to reveal his glory. So he'd be worshipped. It would do us well here to meditate on creation and the God of creation. We can look at that last section. It says, saving faith is the faith in the God who creates. This is, the, this is the point I want you to remember here tonight, okay? If you've been having trouble trying to keep attention, we went through a lot of different scriptures. Okay, now it's time just to bring it back here for the end. But as we consider God in his creation and God in his salvation, saving faith, believing in a God who saves in our Lord Jesus Christ is equated in scripture of a believing in God who creates. It's so troubling to see so many in Christendom who are questioning the creative powers of our God, who are questioning a God who can speak and make this world in seven days or six days and rest on the seventh. Questioning whether the things in Genesis 1-2 are really literal or not. It's so clear as we look through Scripture that God is the Creator. He spoke and it came to be. Now, what is so concerning is not only the fact that we have an historical Adam, which is so important to a historical Jesus Christ in Romans 5, portraying both Adam and Christ side by side as representatives of the human race. 
Not only is the historical Adam important, but the very idea that God is a God who speaks and things come to be in miraculous fashion. That very idea and faith in that is equated in the scriptures to saving faith. It's saving faith to believe in a God who creates and a God who redeems. Look with me at Hebrews 11, verses 1 to 3. Talking about what is faith. Okay, what is faith? Hebrews 11, great place to go. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The convictions, fiction of things not seen. We usually stop right there. Okay, great definition of faith. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. As it continues, this is what it says. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. That is through faith. They were justified. The saving faith. And he's going to list a whole bunch of people here in Hebrews 11. But then he says in verse 3, By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. What does he equate the saving faith that these men received their commendation, that they were justified because of their faith? Faith in a God who creates and things came to be. Saving faith includes a faith that believes that God is the creator and that he spoke and that things came to be. Not only that, but believing in a God who creates gives assurance of God's salvation promises. If we doubt his original creation, how can we have confidence in his new creation? How can we have confidence that when Jesus Christ comes, behold, here comes with him a new heaven, a new earth, a a new bodies for us, a new existence, a garden of Eden here on earth that we're going to live in. God is going to speak and it's going to come to pass. We believe that. Let's believe in a God who creates both in the past and in the future. There's no room. Neither is any need to embrace form of evolution that sees species evolving into another species. This is a tenet of a naturalistic worldview. It's a tenet of another religion. It's like saying, um, I'm a Christian, but I believe in the prophethood of Muhammad. You know, that, that, that doesn't make any sense. How can you hold a tenet of Islam and call yourself a Christian? It's the same thing by saying I'm a Christian, but I leave in, I believe in the, the naturalistic materialistic worldview of evolution. Those things don't mix. That's a, that's a religious tenet. That's a belief about how this world came, in, came to be. And it's contrary to what we see in the scripture of a God who speaks and creates. So let's believe in this God who creates. As Romans 4, 17 says, who gives life to the dead. Okay, that's what we're longing for. Life from the dead. God gives life from the dead and he calls into existence the things that do not exist. We serve a God who is a creator and a savior. Let's pray.